Chief Content Officer of the American Retirement Association. And joining me, of course, is my uh, podcaster partner in prognostication, Mr. Fred Reese. Hey, Fred, how you doing? <laughs> hey, Nevin, I'm good. I uh, I wish I had some comeback for you that had an alliteration like that, but I don't. I'm just here. <laughs> well, Let's you get... will. We've got a little time. <laughs> I, I like my alliterations and you know, it's kind of cool. Anyway, okay. uh, so yes, here we are in the first podcast episode of 2023, and boy, we've had a lot going on. Uh, we've talked, I think, in our last podcast, we talked a little bit about the uh, Secure 2.0, uh, Secure uh, 2.0 Act of 2022. Uh, everybody keeps trying to turn that name into the setting every community up for retirement. You know, they try to, to sort of say, well, the original SECURE Act was had this long acronym, so SECURE 2.0 must have that also. Of course, it doesn't. It is just the plain old SECURE 2.0 Act of 2022. Um, and we've certainly been talking about, you and I were together just last week, you know, talking about different aspects of it, different panels. It was kind of interesting. Um, so there's a lot going on. There are 90 some odd provisions in this legislation. So we've got a lot to chew on. Um, I'll mention right here that the uh, on NapaNet, in fact, it, it was so hard to kind of get our arms around all that. We essentially took the list of provisions and we organized it by effective date because the reality is there's some stuff in Secure 2.0 that would, would happen sort of retroactively to the passage of the bill. And then there's stuff that's happening every year from now, I think, through like 2027. So uh, there's going to be a lot to keep up with. And, uh, and I'll have a link to this uh, below to tell you kind of where to get to to find all some of that stuff. But Fred, we had talked about talking about some of the stuff that um, isn't quite worked out in Secure 2.0, some of which seems to be uh, a typo, some of which seems to be, you know, somebody tried to fix one thing and broke something else. Um, and some of it is just some stuff that's, you know, perhaps kind of buried in the arcane language that is our legislative lingo. There we go with some more alliteration for you, Fred. <laughs> um, so before we launch in, do you want to you preface any of that? Have you worked up some alliterations? So we can yeah, no alliterations, but a couple of thoughts. Um, one, <clears throat> I don't know the folks really realize how this legislation comes together sometimes at the last minute. That It's been floating around for a while, but what ends up coming out has more to it than what was floating around. So they're like new things. And uh, that's part of the issue. Uh, as this came together, there were some changes and and they don't work out well the way the way that you said. Uh, and, you know, the, one of my favorite sayings is there's two things that children should never see, how sausage and legislation are made. Um, that's... <laughs> There's another thing, but we won't go there. Okay. That's, that, that's sort of a description of what happened here. And then just to give some example of, of both those retroactive provisions and of how long it might take to fix some of the problems we're going to talk about today, uh, the SECURE Act 2.0 
had technical corrections for the SECURE Act 1.0 in it, meaning they were retroactively effective to 2019. So I'm not saying it'll be three years before what we're talking about is cleared up, but I am saying it could be. So <laughs> there you go. Let's let's start heading down this road, Nevin. Well, well, on that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the first thing that that I found is that that people uh, sort of caught up in the euphoria of the moment. And let's bear in mind, you know, we're this is all coming together in the very last week of the year, in between, you know, the holidays and everything. So you know, people had a lot of distractions. I mean, goodness gracious, you know, President Biden even had to sign this legislation down in Saint Croix on his vacation. So we were all dealing in sort of different environments here. Um, but one of the things that I think people were really excited about is uh, the notion of uh, CITs, or I'm sorry, 403B plans, being able to invest in collective investment trust. Um, and there's certainly a provision in Secure 2.0 that does address that. Um, but unfortunately, for those who are looking to uh, put those in right away, there's a little but, but wait a minute. You want to talk a little bit about that, Fred? Sure. The the bill that came out of the House, what we originally called the SECURE Act 2.0, when a SECURE Act was just an acronym, that uh, came over to the Senate uh, and then the Senate uh, Finance Committee and the Senate Help Committee worked on with their individual bills. Um, the original House version did have the provisions in there uh, for to amend both the, both the Internal Revenue Code for 403B plans and to amend the securities laws to permit CITs to be in 403B plans and without needing to be mutual funds. Um, well, as this all came together at the last minute in the Senate, uh, they didn't have time to get the Senate Banking Committee involved who had jurisdiction over this issue. So they jettisoned the amendment that was necessary to make it effective. They just amended the Internal Revenue Code. So let's say that we're halfway there, Nevin, but we're not there. And um, there's some question actually of whether we'll ever, whether we will get there in due course or in the near future, because apparently, at least I've heard that there's some skepticism uh, at both the Senate Banking Committee and at the SEC about CITs being in retail products, you know, because because a four hundred three B can be a plan on a platform, right. you know, a custodial platform, or it can be an individual annuity contract. And I think because of the individual annuity contracts, which I don't think this would have applied to anyway, but but because of that, there's a worry about the retail aspects of CITs and whether or not they have the adequate protections as for retail investors as compared at least to mutual funds. So that's the story. It just, it just, it never got into the bill because they didn't have time to get it through the Senate Banking Committee. Yeah, that's a good point. The other point that you also made is it's not like we don't know how to fix it. It's just a question of actually getting it fixed. And to your point, and I think frustratingly so, because it was, the fix was legislatively in the House version of all this. But like you said, um, it's still amazing to me that it all came together, that we basically, you know, integrated three different overlapping and then occasionally competing pieces of legislation in the amount of time that we did. Um, so that, that this one piece fell out is, while disappointing in some ways, nonetheless, is... Um, it's amazing to me how much how much wasn't dropped out of it. Uh, 
Yeah. So there. And that was specifically that was a conscious decision. That was not a mistake. It, right. They just didn't have time, so they consciously decided to pass part of it without the part that's necessary to implement it. Yeah. No. Exactly. Okay. Number two. Uh, on our short list of things that are still out there and somewhat problematic. Uh, this is something that we actually picked up, broke the news, I think, actually, in NapaNet this week. And that is a provision in the Secure 2.0 Act regarding catch-up contributions. Um, and essentially, and, and I will direct everybody to the article, our webpage. I'll have a link to it with the resources to go with the podcast to explain it. But, but essentially, it works like this. There was uh, an attempt in terms of working through the legislation to do a little what I call clean up on aisle five, and it created a mess on aisle six. Um, the net result of all this is if it's something that doesn't get fixed, you've got the potential for eliminating catch-up contributions as an option beginning in 2024. Um, you know, that's, that's the net effect of it. And to really appreciate kind of like how this happens, you really do have to wander into the weeds. Um, and I know that not everybody listening in is going to be, you know, kind of a weeds wallower. There's another alliteration. Uh, but uh, so the details are there in the article if you want to check it out. Um, but I think essentially what you can, can attribute this to is it's an unintentional outcome of some legislative cleanup. And, you know, there's every reason to expect that sometime before 2024, this will get fixed. Um, I've seen some people out there commenting already that, that they think you'd probably be okay. You know, this might be in a state of grayness or whatever, and you'd probably be okay. And there are a couple of procedural things that would allow some of this to be done. But the bottom line is this, is just, just to start with being aware of the fact that this is out there and this is a possibility. And so you just want to be cognizant of it. And we'll obviously be tracking it and, and helping people keep up to date with the status. But, um, but it is something to keep an eye on. You got any yeah. thoughts, Fred? <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I might be a little more blunt. <laughs> okay. It was a screw up. You know, <laughs> they, they just flat out messed up. And um, <laughs> they, they repealed the section that allows catch-up contributions. I, I mean, granted it was inadvertent, but that is a flat out section of the Internal Revenue Code. And they repealed it because of some <laughs> bad cross-references. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, people, yeah, some people are saying it might be okay, but I don't know how you can say you can do something that is no longer authorized by the Internal Revenue Code. The IRS, I mean, it would be... They, they, do, they do tend to be fussy about such things. Yeah, no, they, <laughs> they tend to write regulations consistent with the law. And even if they're more detailed and more complicated and messy in their own right... Those regulations still have to have a legal section to hang their hat on. They can't just like create it out of whole cloth. So um, I, I'm very concerned about it. And in talking with Brad Campbell in my office, Brad says that <clears throat> the Republicans in the House are reluctant to start a new tax bill, which a technical corrections bill would be a tax bill, right. because then it goes over to the Senate. And they're afraid that the Senate bills have to start with the tax bills have to start at the House Ways and Means Committee. That's the way the rules work. But then it would go over to the Senate and then the Senate can amend it however they want and could turn it into a bigger piece of tax legislation than the House may have contemplated. And then you have a fight between the House and the Senate. So 
there is some chance we won't get technical corrections next year. There is some chance this will not be cleared up by 2024. Um, and I mean, I'm advising people to wait. Don't do it. Don't 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 go ahead and implement that provision, uh, or or the provisions related to uh, catch-up contributions. And be careful heading into 2024 if you can allow anybody in a plan, a 401k plan, to have a catch-up on top of their on top of their regular deferral amounts. So I'm very concerned about it, Nevin, more more than certainly some people are. Well, and for what it's worth, so are we, which is why we raised the issue and we raised it as loud uh, as loud as we could. It is it is one of those things though that you really do have to kind of wade into the weeds to to see. It's right there when you go looking for it, but but I will commend the folks on the uh, ARA's Government Affairs Committee, particularly Mr. Robert Richter, for stumbling across um, that little oops moment. Um, to your point, it, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I don't think people realize, you know, like the way we talk about it is if there's a code section that was taken out and replaced in the bill. What they do is the bill says in section such and such, this word is changed. So you got to go from the bill, the act, over to the code or ERISA and look at that word being changed and figure out what it means. It's, it is a mess. It is a mess to try to figure out 350 pages of the SECURE Act that are written that way. And, and so, yeah, I mean, the first time I heard about it, I thought this can't possibly be true. I, I did not believe it. I was highly skeptical. I wasn't going to tell that to anybody else before fear I'd be wrong. And then as I started checking into it and checking with other people, you know, Robert was right. They just messed up. And that's alliterative, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Um, well, the next thing we wanted to talk about had to do with uh, the required minimum distribution. And this, I think, does count as a typo. At least we think it's a typo. Um, so let's talk about that, Fred. What's going on there? Well, it's either a mental or a physical typo. We're not sure which, but but one or the other. Uh, well, you know, for years, the required minimum distribution start age, the age at which you had to start dealing with it, was 70 and a half. Then Secure Act 1.0 changed it to 72. Uh, then now Secure Act 2.0 has changed it to 73, I think, for this year. Um, but then it changes it to 75 in 2032. Uh, the problem is the way the rule is written is if you're if I've got these dates right, um, if you're 73 years old and 2032, yeah. you have to take minimum required distributions for 20, 2032. But if you're old, if you're uh, 74 or older in 2033 then you don't have to start taking them until you're 75. Okay, simple, right? The problem is somebody who's 73 in 2032 will also be 74 in 2033. So which date do they have to start taking their RMDs? For 2032 or 2033? Nobody knows. Maybe you have to take two RMDs. I'm kidding. But the, I think... Uh, they are. It is going to take a statutory amendment. I, I think the thing different here than what we were just talking about with uh, ketchup, is that um, we've got almost ten years to get this one straightened out. So here there is time for a legislative fix, and they're going to have to say one or the other. Either 
either uh, it's going to be 2031. Oh, I'm sorry, it's going to be the 2032 age or it's going to be the 2033 age. But they got to clear that up because it, it's an imponderable otherwise. <laughs> well, no, not if you exist in two parallel universes. Maybe that's how you <laughs> deal with it. Well, hey, um, another thing I know was was big on your radar and, and put it in the category of things that are there uh, that people might not have picked up on. And that has to do with this this fairly, what I would consider to be kind of an obscure provision. And the obscure provision is that, you know, there's an allowance. If, if the employer wants to allow this, employees can elect to take the employer con- their employer contributions as Roth contributions, um, which I'll just say... I think that's kind of a bizarre notion, but okay, I, you know, I can see somebody out there is going to want to do it and probably help the scoring on the bill to allow for that. But, um, but there's a twist to it. What's the twist, Fred? Well, first, let me talk about the scoring on the bill, because I'm not sure everybody even understands why Roth is so popular with Congress. Um, for every provision that creates like an extra tax deduction or a tax benefit, um, they look at the cost of it over the next 10 years and they try to offset the cost by additional tax revenues over the next 10 years. But if something happens 10 years on a day from now, they don't even think about it. They don't have to calculate it. Uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, so anytime you hear the word Roth, you think it's taxed currently. So there'll be very little tax benefit delivered over 10 years to participants, but a lot of tax collections by the IRS over the next 10 years by the Treasury Department. So it is. It's an offset provision. And uh, the craziness is, I, I, I mean, maybe it was intended. It, it probably was intended. It's just not well worded. Um, but the provision says that you can, the employer has the option to decide whether or not matching contributions and or so-called non-elective contributions from the employer. We used to call those profit sharing contributions. Uh whether or not to allow their employees to elect Roth treatment. So if a plan sponsor says, yes, I want to allow my employees to elect Roth treatment, which could make a lot of sense for a company with a white collar professional college educated employees because they have lower income early years where it makes sense to Roth. They probably have real high income later years when they probably shouldn't Roth. But to build up a a diversified portfolio of Roth and non-Roth, and if you're going to be pulling money out uh, in what would otherwise be fairly high income years, because you made a lot of money while you were working. So it's attractive for that kind of employer. The problem is, when you really get down into the weeds, it says in order to do it, the employees have to be fully vested in the matching contribution or fully vested and or fully vested in the non-elective contribution. So if a, for a company out there that has 100% vesting, for either their matching or their non-elective or both, and they have the right demographics of a workforce, then it can make sense. But I'm afraid a lot of people are thinking this just says, oh yeah, you can Roth, but you can't. If you have a vesting schedule, you can't because it makes no sense. You can't comply with the requirement that the accounts be fully vested unless you change your vesting schedule. So I'm afraid, Nevin, people are gonna stumble over this. They're, They're gonna think you can do things that you can't do which is that they're going to think that if a plan has a vesting schedule, you can still let the employees Roth. So that's my worry there. Well, I just keep thinking, trying to put on my plan sponsor hat here and saying, okay, 
So among all the options I'm giving people, which they struggle with anyway, I'm now going to add to that, that array the, the notion that you're going to choose to take the contributions we put in your account on, an, on a Roth basis. And that's even forgetting aside, setting aside the poor record keeper who's got to now keep up with yet another bucket here. Um, so again, we'll, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how it happens. But to your point, if somebody does do it, they just need to be aware of that additional condition and make sure that that gets taken into account. Yeah, two quick comments, Nevin. One, I don't think people realize how many of the provisions in this bill are optional. You're, you're pointing out that this one is an option at the employer and an option at the employee. Right. Uh, that's one. I mean, and, and, and that means there's going to be a huge educational effort by providers and advisors and lawyers and others uh, of plan sponsors so they can figure out which ones are right. Um, and secondly, some of these create options like this does for the employees. That assumes a certain level of sophistication, education uh, of the employee, of the workforce. Uh, so yeah, this is not like, this is a little bit different than what we're used to seeing in the past. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I, and I like the point you made about, about how much in this bill is optional. I would say overall, I'm, I'm, I find that good. Um, because it's nice to have options and because I think it also takes into account the what can be a wide variety in terms of the workforces that, that you're trying to tailor benefits for, the employers, the demographics, their geographic locales. So when you've got something like the emergency savings situations or when you've got things like the student loan repayment matching and things like that, I think it's great for an employer to be able to have those options and not, if you will, sort of have it you know mandated on them. Um, but it also means that when we try to figure out how much difference all of this is going to make, it's going to depend a lot on how much people take advantage of it and how they take advantage of it. So uh, we'll I think be... that, no, I agree. And I, and I think that puts a lot of pressure. First off, it creates a much more complex system where this is a bill of complexity because of the optionality. And secondly, it puts a lot more pressure, particularly on retirement plan advisors to educate their clients. Because, you know, when you get to the small and mid-sized markets, uh, Plan sponsors don't tend to have direct sources of information about benefits. It's it's only as you get to larger plans where they go to benefits conferences and things like that where they can get third-party information. But I, I see a lot of work for advisors here, a lot. Well, speaking of which, I know the other thing, you and I were talking about this last weekend. Um, we One of the provisions in the bill, which is not optional, has to do with uh, new plans and a requirement on the part of those new plans. Um, again, we talked about this in our last podcast. It was going to depend on the effective date of the Secure 2.0. And now, you know, we have the Secure, we have the date. So we know the effective date and we know that all the new plans that are formed, you know, after that effective date or is it on or after that effective date? Anyway, on or after. Mm -hmm. On or after the yeah. effective date are going to have to have automatic enrollment and automatic escalation. And, you know, there's guidelines around and all that. Um, but that part is not optional for people who are coming in, um, except there's it doesn't take effect right away. Um, so let's, it doesn't take effect until, what, 2025? Five. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you set up a plan today. And you know that out there in 2025, you're going to have to do automatic enrollment. And I guess the question is, so what do you do between now and then? Or maybe you just bite the bullet and do it now. What do you think? I have so many thoughts on this, Nevin. Um, 
this bill or this provision rather has an effect two effective dates 2025 when they actually have to automatically enroll and defer and increase deferrals automatically uh, and the effective date for determining which plans or which companies this applies to so any plan established any 401k plan established on or after the enactment date december 29 2022 has to automatically enroll and have automatic deferral increases, but not until 2025. What are the odds that maybe a few hundred plans across the country might mess that up somehow? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like I can just see problems lurking. You know, first off, advisors have to know this. If they're helping a plan sponsor set up a plan now and, and have that conversation you just mentioned, uh, should you automatically enroll now or should you wait? Uh, and I, I just see that there's actually what you might argue two other effective dates on this one provision. Uh, it doesn't apply if you have 10 or fewer employees. So the next effective date is one year after you have your 11th employee, right. whatever, 2026, 2029, 2050, whatever. The other is it doesn't apply to you've been in business for three years, at least three years. So after three years is another effective date in effect. Again, 2025. 2030, 2050. Uh, it's, it's, boy, it, this is going to take a lot of attention. My personal view, I would just start automatically enrolling everybody because I wouldn't want to have to worry about, do I realize when they get their 11th employee? Do I realize, you know, the third anniversary of, of, of the date of, of, of the beginning of the business? Uh, it and, and I say that, I guess, in a fit of caution, Nevin, but I do... I just know how the world works, and I know people are going to miss this if they don't start it off automatically enrolled. I keep trying to picture a fit of caution. <laughs> <laughs> a cautionary fit? Yeah, seems a little, whatever. Anyway, if, any, if anybody could do it, Fred, it'd be you. It'd be you. <laughs> Well, you know what? We are kind of at our time. We have hit our major stuff. Uh, you got anything else you want to wrap us up with, Fred, other than obviously we're probably not done coming up with things <laughs> that need to be looked at. No, no we're, I, I, you know, I mean, I guess I have t two thoughts for the audience. The first one is I, I, I promise that I will work on my alliterations so that by <laughs> the next time I, I have something to say about Nevin that will be interesting. Um, but the other is, uh, you know, the, you just got to be on top of this law so fast. One thing we didn't even say was that the effective dates, even if you forget retroactive, the effective dates range from the enactment date, December 29, 2022, out to five years from now. I mean, you ought to be looking at the ones that are effective at date of enactment and in 2023 right now. Uh, but keep in mind, 2024 is right around the corner. If, if you're gonna, if some of these new optional provisions are good for an employer, they should probably start talking about them in July or August, make a decision on them in September or October, and at the same time coordinate with the record keepers and other providers, start providing employee educational material in November at the latest, and, and modify your, your participation forms and your deferral election. I mean, on and on and on. You get the idea. But I, I just think uh, you, you got to approach this chronologically. And yeah, we're going to have more errors in the future to talk to people about. This thing is uh, this thing's a monster. Yes, it is. But lots of options, lots of things to talk about, lots of things to write about. 
and probably to your point earlier, Fred, lots of things for the the legal community to be involved with. So there's that. Um, and a reminder, as I said at the outset of this, that effective date thing is really important. That's why the chart that we've organized by effective date, I think you're going to find to be just a dandy resource. So uh, we'll have a link to that in the resources. Um, Fred, I guess the other thing is we ought to just remind everybody we are coming up fast on the dates for the Napa 401k Summit, April 2nd through the 4th in San Diego, California. Uh, early bird date is 131. That's right around the corner also. And um, part of this uh, on April 4th, you'll get to have an opportunity to see the Nevin and Fred podcast live, just like we did last year. A great turnout. Should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it, Fred. How about you? I am too. We're going to have some fun. And I mean, we had a, uh, God, a standing room only uh, uh, attendance at last year. So we're going, to, well, we're going to build on that, Nevin. Yeah. Well, you know, like, like the, they say in Jaws, you're going to need a bigger boat. Well, we need a bigger room. So we're yeah. working on that. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. Have a great one. Bye.